This is episode number 98 of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of To Birth and Beyond. I'm Jessie Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health, and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood, including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of To Birth and Beyond. It's Jesse Mundell. And today we are joined by Dr. Christina Holland. I'm so excited to have you here, Christina. Thank you for being on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, I have been really appreciative of your presence on your show for actually a long time. Oh my gosh. Thank you. And right back at you. I've loved following you on social media. So it's really fun to be able to see your face and chat with you today. Yeah. It always is really exciting when internet friends become more closer internet friends and then eventually hopefully real life friends. I know. Exactly. (laughs) So true. I am going to read a bio of yours just to introduce everyone to you if they're not familiar with you yet. But before I do that, what we're going to be chatting about today with Christina is the work that you do as a pelvic floor physical therapist in the U.S. and specifically the work that you do with treating transgender and gender diverse patients. So let's jump right in. Awesome. Dr. Christina Holland, PT, DPT, owner of Inclusive Care, helps people get back to doing the things they love with the people they love to do them with. She works specifically with people who want to take an active role in their healthcare decisions and who no longer want to live with pain or restriction. Her treatment philosophy has been shaped by her own time, feeling unheard and misunderstood as a patient. In addition to orthopedic conditions, Christina evaluates and treats pelvic floor dysfunction, including pain with intercourse, leaking, and pelvic girdle pain. She sees patients regardless of sexual identity or gender and has experience treating transgender patients after gender affirmation surgery. Wonderful. Can I just confirm your pronouns before we keep going? Yes, she, her, hers. Wonderful. Thank you. All right. I'm so interested about how you got here, the path that led you to this work. I've read a little bit on social media and as it talked about in your bio that you've really come to this work from feeling unheard and misunderstood as a patient. So tell us about that. How did you get here? And now what is the work that you do? Yeah. So when I was in physical therapy school, I spent the last 10 years before I went to PT school, hundred percent positive. I was going to work in pediatrics. Um, and then was in school for six months, ended up teaching an anatomy and physiology class as a TA and I had to do a teaching demo. And so I picked reproductive anatomy because I had been familiar with that from my college days and some other like peer health education stuff that I did. Um, and then 
I realized that I was going to teach 18 year olds in Georgia, in Atlanta, Georgia. So, which is in the Southeast, not like great sex ed. And I realized that maybe the first time they were going to hear the word fallopian tube was going to be out of my mouth. Um, (laughs) So I panicked, I panicked hard. I uh, reached out to a bunch of different people. And ultimately um, I connected with a researcher who does research in the field of contraceptive technology and contraceptive statistics. So when you hear that the pill is 98% effective, this is the person that I cold emailed um, who actually happened to respond. (laughs) So through that, I went to um, a seminar, like conference that I had no business being at. I was the only person under the age of 35. I was the only person who was never going to prescribe medication of any sort. Um, But in a conversation about uh, sexuality, we were talking about people wanting like a quote, female Viagra. And someone mentioned that, is it really a sexual um, desire and libido discrepancy or is it um, more of an issue in the pelvic floor in terms of blood flow and pain? So that kind of springboarded me into pelvic health. And then while I was still in PT school, I required a pelvic surgery myself. Um, I had a urethral diverticulum that was repaired, but I also had a cyst um, that apparently were not the same thing, but we didn't know that until after I had a surgery and wore a catheter for 30 days. and I had a healthcare provider who was a very, very brilliant and very well known in the field and did not have good bedside manner. And I realized that if something like that could happen to me as a health, a budding healthcare provider, what in the world is happening to like in the field of pelvic health? And like, I know my anatomy and I know what's down there. What in, in the world is happening for, to other people in the healthcare field? So that got me into pelvic health specifically. Wow, a catheter for 30 days. Yeah, it was awful. It was really, really, really awful. Okay, so what was the surgery exactly? So I had an outcropping of my urethra. Um, So it had at some point become been a cyst and the cyst kind of exploded. Um, And things like to heal in the body from the outside in rather than the inside out. And so it just kept getting healed over. And then the cyst was continuing to secrete. It would blow up. I would get all these urinary tract infection symptoms. So I went through five rounds of medication, um, eight months of feeling like I had a urinary tract infection, five providers, like it was a mess. It was just a mess. So they ended up going into my vagina, cutting into my vaginal wall, cutting through my urethra, taking out the cyst, clearing out that outcropping, closing it back up, then closing, so closing the urethra up, closing the vagina up, um, and then you don't want urine in an an open wound, right? So then that's why I had to wear the catheter. And they had to, they took it out. I've like peed on x-ray. Like I've done lots of very interesting things in my life. And I write about it all on the internet, like a normal person. (laughs) (laughs) So what everyone does, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I um, ended up getting it removed and then had to ultimately get it back in because I hadn't healed completely. So ultimately it all told 30 days. Holy. Okay. What was the recovery process from that like? Yeah, for sure. So I was already into pelvic health, was already interested, and I was so scared. I was so nervous. I was so scared. Um, And then worse was that once the surgery was over and then I was checking myself and I realized I actually had a completely separate cyst that wasn't fixed by the diverticulum and repair and also was never noticed by my healthcare provider. And I thought that was the thing that was causing my symptoms. So that was a whole thing. but at, then after the surgery I had, I still had urinary tract infection symptoms and I had painful intercourse and I had, I like was retaining urine and that was also like a whole thing. Um, and so it, I ended up seeing a pelvic floor physical therapist, which was 
great for my education. My grandma told, called it um, insurance funded edu professional education, which is sort of what it was. Uh, and it taught me a lot about how intimate it can be and how stressful it is to think that there's something wrong with your genitals and not know what it is. And the real estate is real shared down there and it's so close. And so just not always knowing what's going on and how stressful that is. Mm -hmm. So the recovery and all told is a couple of months of PT. Um, and, and just like reminding myself of that, like I was safe and whole and complete and, and that I could, I could be okay, which was a whole another part of the whole recovery. Wow. So interesting. Was the, was your experience with pelvic floor PT positive? Yeah, I actually had a great pelvic floor PT. Uh, I also think it helped. I think it always helps when you speak the language. Um, so that was really nice for me. I'm also a cis woman. So I think that's important to note. Um, so I'm someone that healthcare providers typically, that was kind of interesting too, is that healthcare providers normally think that I'm easy to work with. I am demure and deferent and like those sorts of things typically. Um, although I'm also, I, other times I'm a, I'm a very straight shooter and I'm very direct. So I don't want to um, not be clear about both of those aspects. Um, but in terms of being a recipient of healthcare, I'm typically very deferent and demure. And so to be a patient that a provider found problematic through no fault of my own uh, was a really interesting experience too. Mm, yeah, no doubt. So at this time, were you working as a physical therapist or not yet? Not yet. So I was still, I was in my third year of PT school. So okay. I was also taking classes and getting ready to go on clinical rotations and like doing these things. Um, yeah, it was a mess. Yeah. That sounds like a real fun time. <laughs> yeah. It was very stressful. I learned a lot. I hope I never, ever, ever, ever have to do it again. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So did that really pique your interest in wanting to move into pelvic health physio? Yeah. So I had kind of had that experience where I learned about pelvic health physio and I had sort of already had sort of changed my trajectory from pediatrics into that field. And then it just, it lit a fire. The, the fire was already small and now then it was blazing. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I think more than even my interest in pelvic health physio, it was more about just trying to get people really, really good quality healthcare, especially people who might not always have, that might not be their default. Yeah, so important. And I do really appreciate you making that note that you are a cis woman and that absolutely will impact the type of care you receive. Also, 100%. yeah, you're a white woman, as mm -hmm. am I. There's all these layers that impact how, yeah, we will be treated in these yeah. worlds. I had private health insurance. Um, I am very educated at this point. I was literally in a doctoral program. Um, so there were a bunch of things that were, you know, on my side in terms of privilege and being someone who should, by all counts, have had a good healthcare experience. Absolutely. So tell us what it looks like in your business now and the work that you do. Yeah. So I actually, I work part-time for myself at Inclusive Care um, and I have, it's just me um, and I rent a space. I work in an area that has, it's actually really cool. We have um, a perinatal chiropractor and um, some massage therapists who also work with trans and non-binary folks, um, as well as a nutritionist and a craniosacral therapist, and also some midwife, home birth midwives and 
um, an acupuncturist. So that's just a really cool space in general for a lot of reasons. Um, and then I also work part-time at a, at a community, a nonprofit community safety net hospital, which is primarily where I see a lot of my post-operative vaginal plastic patients. So those are trans women who have undergone bottom surgery and I am the person that shows them how to dilate for the first time and then helps them get back to all of their sexual health goals. Um, I'm also in that hospital part of an integrated uh, public health team where I work with a bunch of different types of providers. So an OB-GYN, a psychiatrist, a psych couple psychologists, another public floor physical therapist, um, and a GI doc. And we all work together um, to work with people who have really complex chronic pelvic pain. Wow. Amazing. I'm such, kind of in a lot of places. Yeah. Such important work on all of these friends. Okay. There's so much I want to talk to you about. First off, can you just define for us what transgender is before we go further? Sure. So cisgender person, so it's, it comes down to the prefix, right? So cis means the same. So people who identify as the same gender that they were identified at at birth. Um, versus trans, which means across, so people who do not identify as the gender that they were assigned at birth. Wonderful. It, gets, it can get a little, so that's like the most direct, least nuanced version of that, that definition, but it can become very, very interesting. And um, in terms of sometimes you, when you're talking about other, um, like gender neutral people, for example, gender non-binary people, um, so you can be a trans person who, who is still in the binary, who still identifies as male or female, but then there's also people who are non-binary, genderqueer, who were, who are completely outside of the, of that binary, those two options. Excellent. Super helpful. And then a couple other terms to talk about upfront, what would it mean to what does trans masculine mean what does trans feminine mean so that would be a trans trans masculine is trans a trans man and then trans feminine is a is a trans woman um so it's there in the name the the person that they are not the person that they were identified at birth perfect Okay. All right. So let's talk about the work that you do at the hospital, seeing mm -hmm. those patients. Um, you mentioned those people that you work with who have had bottom surgery. Mm -hmm. What is that? What does that entail? I know there can be different um, types. So mm -hmm. can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So the people that I primarily see are trans women specifically, and they have... Um, so I think it's also, can we do like a quick disclaimer about the words like using anatomical terms? Um, yes. So this is something that comes up a lot, especially in the work that I do now. When I first started this work before I worked with a lot of trans people or non-binary people, I felt very strongly that we should all use anatomical terms all the time because they were going to be the least um, loaded and they were going to be the most clear and that it, it helps people speak the language of their provider, which in my experience is very helpful and I think helps to get people good care, good quality care. So with that being said, there's like a huge asterisk there that anatomical terms can be extremely challenging for people who do not identify their body 
in the way that the medical system identifies their body. Um, and so I think for the sake of clarity, I would like to use anatomical terms today, and but knowing that that can be extremely challenging for people um, and can really increase people's dysphoria. So with that being said, thanks for letting me say that. Um, with that being said, um, I am primarily working with people who were born with penises, uh, who have had the penises um, kind of reconstructed into a vaginal canal. Um, there are also surgeries that you can have that would turn a clitoris kind of into, you can have a phalloplasty, so you can have a penis created. Um, so those are the, the two kind of uh, metoidioplasty, um, uh, oh shoot, oh, it's a clitoris removal. So there are just a, there are a bunch of different things that can be done. Um, and so I'm actually now double checking metoidioplasty because I don't typically work with that population, but. Yeah, I have that definition up here on my computer right now, actually. So metoidioplasty, yeah. lower surgery to create a penis from the clitoris through clitoral release and grafting skin around the shaft to add girth. Yeah, as opposed to a phalloplasty, which is almost like a, a surgical attachment of, of a penile implant. That's the difference. Okay. And so are you then primarily working with people who have had vaginoplasty? Correct. Yes. Almost. Okay. Uh, in terms of trans people, almost entirely. I also work with quite a few non-binary non gender queer people, but they okay. have, some of them have had surgery of some sort. Some of them have not. Some of them are just on or are on hormonal intervention. Some of them are not. Okay. So let's say you are seeing a patient who has had vaginoplasty and this is mm -hmm. going to be your first session with them. How soon after surgery might that be? So it depends on where you are. In some places, people who have um, a vaginoplasty don't see a pelvic floor physical therapist at all. So at the hospital that I'm at, which is at Denver Health in Denver, Colorado, we see patients seven days post-op. So they've been in the hospital for a couple of days. They go home for a couple of days with a catheter and a um, and vaginal packing in so i always I always commiserate about the catheter situation um but then when they come in um they see a nurse or, and the surgeon they get the pa packing and the catheter removed most of the time they're handed a series of dilators four dilators which are large acrylic they're hard devices that they are then inserting into their vagina in the first three months three times a day in order to maintain the shape and structure of the vagina because as we kind of talked about your body wants to he wants to close heal closed um, wounds want to heal closed um, and so that keeps that from happening at in their their new vagina their the neo vagina okay so interesting so you are teaching them say in that first session you are teaching them how to use the dilator yeah so i do what i what it ultimately looks like they come in we go through a huge packet of information that includes the thing that they're going to be dilating for three times a day for three months then it goes down to two times a day then it goes down to one time a day and then it goes down to several times a week and so and that's several times a week for the foreseeable future for the rest of their lives so i which i think is just really important to note because before i started doing this work i didn't realize how big of a commitment to their body, like to your body and your health, it is to have that type of procedure done, which also I think really speaks to why not all, they're one of the reasons that not all, not all trans women need to or want to undergo that process. Absolutely. 
Yeah, thank you for mentioning that because that was going to be my next question to you about how long this dilation protocol lasts for. So yeah. interesting. Forever. So um, also in that first visit, I will, so I'll do a quick exam, then I'll dilate for them to show them so they can see, and then um, they will dilate themselves. And then we make sure that they're feeling really confident and then they're on their way home. So cool. And that's at seven days post-op. Correct. Are they having, what is the pain level like at this point? I'm sure it varies so much, but. Yeah. It's a really interesting question because you would think that people would be in the most pain they've ever been in their life. But honestly, after that packing comes out and after the catheter comes out, there's a relative amount of, of comfort that comes with that. And some of these women, and it's the coolest thing, are just so excited to feel at home in their body. They're so excited. And like new vaginas, just like any post-op situation, you get a total knee replacement, you look down, you're like, oh, that is not what I expected that to look like, right? Like uh, that is, you know, there's more blood than I anticipated. There are stitches. And so there's some medical stuff there that can be really alarming sometimes. And it is sometimes to some people. But there are also people that are just so excited to have the body that they have felt like they should have had for so long um, that their pain levels are often actually pretty low. So cool. <laughs> yeah. Goosebumps when you were saying that because that is a scenario that I imagine. And it's so interesting to think about the influence on someone's experience of pain. But like you're saying how they feel in their body and maybe the relief that they're experiencing, how that can then affect their experience of the sensation of pain. It, it just is fascinating to think of all of these factors. Totally. And it is, it's so multifactorial and it changes with time as well and stage of healing. And we're also talking about, so from a pelvic floor standpoint, a lot of, I see a lot of people in general who are having pelvic pain who also have very extensive trauma histories. There's a high instance of trauma in the in not only the population I see at the hospital, but the population I, I think pretty much every pelvic floor physical therapist sees. Um, I guess especially because I'm at a safety community safety net hospital, but really everybody. And so, and we know that there's such a huge number of trans folks who have very extensive trauma histories as well. So it it is a factor, but you don't really in my opinion, you don't really know what, what, what post-op um, pain levels are going to be like or what really to expect post-op, even necessarily based on a pre-op situation, because I think your nervous system in interprets that so differently and it can just, it changes pretty significantly. Absolutely. That's so interesting. So they see you seven days post-op. You teach them about the dilator are they starting with the smallest size and then the goal is to work up to the larger sizes over time yeah so it sometimes it's we give them four for sure sometimes we give a trans woman four for sure and then if she is unable to use the small size maybe her muscles are really really tight maybe she's just a very tiny human in general um, then we have an even smaller set uh, that's of two and we use the sole source dilators for anyone who's familiar and we have them work up eventually over time to something that I should have looked up the measurement of it, but it is, it is substantial. It's pretty mm -hmm. large. Um, and I'll have people, I'll pull it out for people. I used to pull the biggest one out before we dilated. And then I realized I was shocking people 
into like fear and panic. Uh, Cause when you see something scary, especially something that's scary, that's going to go inside of you, all your muscles kind of clench in response. So I started doing it after, uh, but the, <laughs> the biggest one is what they, is what the surgeons use to create the vagina. So there's enough tissue to do it. And sometimes there's even more, um, it's just a process of getting your body to be able to accept things of increasing size. Cool. So how long do you recommend that they leave the dilator inside the vagina for? So our protocol is that we have people insert it for 15 minutes. And so the timer starts when you get the dilator to full depth. So the, those dilators have dots on the top. Um, and so you can track how far they're going inside um, and then make sure that you're hitting that every time and and go from there and so that yeah so usually it takes closer to 30 minutes because it takes a little bit of time to go inside and a little bit of time um to come back out sometimes the other thing that's just i don't think i really thought about very much is that it requires a lot of lubricant because um surgically created vaginas are not self-lubricating most of the time they actually can be which is super interesting but not enough to be able to get something inside, whether that is a vibrator or a dilator or a penis or a hand or anything else. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So 15 to 30 minutes for that. Mm -hmm. And we're doing that three times a day once Mm -hmm. they go home and continuing this for the three months and then tapering Mm -hmm. over time, but continuing to some degree forever and ever. And it's also not you know, in spite of the fact that there are people who absolutely experience lower post-operative pain levels than I would expect, than I originally expected, it is not a comfortable process. They, you become very sore. It can be quite painful and there is no other option. So it is either I do this three times a day, or I run the risk that my vagina that I have just, that I've wanted my whole, potentially my whole life, that I have spent lots of money on, that I have undergone all of this trauma to, and like, so much stuff to get here can close and I can no longer have it. And so it puts people in a really heightened nervous system state because that's a, that's a really intense kind of scary like possibility. Yeah. Wow. That is so much to weigh on a person. I was going to ask you this too about the cost of surgery Mm -hmm. and how this all works in the insurance system. I was looking into Um, some of the Canadian factors on this, but I'm sure it's completely different in the U.S. So I, my assumption is that it's all paid for out of pocket, but what is happening in the hospital you work at? So the hospital I work at primary Medicaid is our primary payer and Medicaid is paying some amount for these surgeries. I, but it's, it's not very much. I think it's 30%. Honestly, I am very lucky in that and so far as the insurance system goes, I'm, I'm pretty far removed from it. We have people whose whole job it is to manage that thing. Yes. That whole system. <laughs> um, but it's still, and so, especially when you're talking about the fact that a lot of trans people, a disproportionate number of trans people are not working, are underserved by healthcare in general, are un, un or underinsured, um, they can experience high levels of houselessness. It, it is a really, really big investment in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ballpark, what do you think the cost of surgery might be? Mm. <laughs> I, I, that's a really good question. I honestly don't know. Did you look to see what it was in Canada? 
Well, I was looking in BC, so British Columbia, which is not the province we live in, the province mm-hmm. more west of us. And what what I could find was that it was generally covered by their healthcare system, their provincial oh, that's system. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to do more research into the province we live in, which is Alberta, but I'll look up some links too, and we'll post them in the show notes so we can have maybe a more understanding of what it looks like financially. Yeah. I know that most of my, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, Just, I know most of my uh, Medicaid patients, I think end up paying a thousand dollars out of pocket. I think that's their requirement. Um, But I, I would, can't really speak to it more than that. Yeah. We'll check it out more for sure. We'll post in the show notes. Okay. So after the seven day post-op, do they see you again? Yeah. So hopefully um, we have people who are traveling from all over the kind of the, this area, definitely all over Colorado, but even outside of that. And so if they're living really far away, then I may not have that opportunity um, because it's quite a distance. Um, I like to see people every three-ish weeks, two to three weeks. And that just helps to make sure that we're staying on track and everything's working. And so it also gets exciting because then at eight weeks, we get to start talking about having an an external orgasm. And then at 12 weeks, we get to start talking about having penetrative intercourse. And so I like to follow people, you know, three two to three weeks to make sure that they're hitting the, their goals that they are important to them. Cool. And they would be seeing you in the hospital system still or at your private business? So typically at the hospital, uh, within the hospital system. So if people are on Medicaid, it's great because it's a much lower cost option to be able to see me at the hospital. And I don't, I don't really have patients who go from the hospital to private pay. Normally the people who see me in my private practice are people who are able to come outside of the medical system and are really frustrated with the medical system, similarly to how I felt when I was, when I went through my own healthcare journey. But it's really cool for me as a business owner and as just as a therapist to be able to see both of those populations and to be able to kind of see where they overlap and intersect. And I get to talk to a lot of primarily cis women about, you know, trans healthcare and talking about what they're experiencing as, as a woman, but also just as a vulva owner and distinguishing how those things could be different. And it's cool. It's really cool. So cool. You have the best job. (laughs) Yeah. People always ask me, they're like, Oh, so if you get busy at inclusive care, will you quit at the hospital? And no, I, I don't think I will because I just, I love what I do at the hospital and it's so different. I have access to so many different things than I have um, outside of the hospital system. That's wonderful. All right. So I'm so interested about when you are going into those post-op sessions with a trans woman, what is going through your mind? What is your mindset going in so that you can be a compassionate, effective provider? So for me, actually treating trans women is not really very different than treating cis women. Um, I think treating non-binary folks is, takes up a little bit more brain space. I have to be a little bit more careful about my verbiage and things like that. Um, in treating trans women, it's very easy to, so they've had a vaginoplasty. They're so excited about having a vagina. They've been a woman for a long time. And this is just one more way that they can feel like a woman, that they feel that they are a woman and that they can kind of like show to society and to other people that they are a woman. Um, And so I just talk to them like women, right? We talk about the same things. It's 
been hilarious to me how many, um, like they make the same comments like, oh, my partner's such a dude, you know? And so it's great. I, we commiserate. It's lovely. <laughs> so good. <laughs> um, I think something that was surprising to me when I first started was that I didn't anticipate the number of trans women that I treat to all who are also lesbians. So I sort of assumed like, if you wanted a vagina, that you, you wanted to have a vagina to put something inside, which is not the case at all. Um, because you know, sexual orientation is separate from gender. So people can be attracted to who they're attracted to regardless of what genitals they, they have, um, which sounds so obvious when you say it out loud, but was something that I just was surprised by when I first started working in the field. Yeah, absolutely. We don't have these conversations enough. We don't get this education a lot of the time. No. Um, something I think that can be important is just as any I think something that is important in terms of being a compassionate provider for trans folks, non-binary folks, um, intersex folks in general, is just one, remembering that nobody actually owes you any information. So only asking questions that are really medically necessary and relevant and explaining why they're medically necessary and relevant. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that has kind of also changed how I treat cis women as well, because I used to ask all my personal questions and then give them some pelvic floor education as kind of a a later on explanation and um, validation. And now I ask some questions, give a little education about pelvic floor so they know why I'm asking all these really intimate questions and then asking more questions if they're okay with it. Um, And I think that's been really helpful in getting some buy-in and lowering people's sense of threat, perceived threat, because it's really scary to have, especially if you feel like you have been mistreated by the healthcare system in the past, which many, 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 many trans people have. Um, the numbers on it are really, truly staggering. Um, if anyone, oh, I closed it when I was trying to shut down all the internet things, but there's the transgender health surgery from 2015. And you can go on there and look at and just see what people have to say about their healthcare experiences um, in this really big study. And the numbers are really really staggering. Like I think a third of people had been denied care because of their identity as a trans person. Yeah. Truly terrible. We'll find the link to that for the show notes too. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So let me see if I can get my thoughts across in this question effectively. So I'm wondering like purely from a physical touch physical feel standpoint for you the work that you're doing as a pelvic PT so with a trans woman who has had a vaginoplasty versus a cis woman what do those vulvar and vaginal tissues feel like to you do they feel very similar do they feel very different what is it yeah so super similar they I was actually very surprised uh when I first saw a a transgender vulva, I was like, oh, that kind of looks like my vulva. More swollen, more bloody, more bruised right now because we're po- seven days post-op, but like that looks like a vulva. Uh, and it, that the appearance really kind of depends on the surgeon too. There are a bunch of di- different techniques um, and I, nothing is standardized. The research is all over the place because it's such a new field, which is something that as a healthcare provider is both exciting for me, but also very aggravating to be honest because there is no right answer um sometimes and so that can be really challenging but with that being said they it looks like a vulva in the surgeries that 
the surgeons at my hospital are doing, the vaginal opening is a little bit closer to the, the rectum. So the perineum is a little bit smaller. Um, and, but it looks, it looks like a vulva. And so then the tissues also feel like a vulva. They are, I think they're removing bulbospongiosis for the most part. And then what they do is they basically go in and they invert the penis to create a canal. Um, and they remove the nerves, they separate the nerves um, from the, the skin and the tissues, and that becomes the clitoris. So from a tissue standpoint, I can feel the sutures sometimes, right? Like you have, there's a line of sutures on the posterior vaginal wall, um, but it, it, it's on, you can only feel it if you're really feeling for it. Otherwise it feels like a vagina. Um, and that's what I also tell them in terms of, my patients in terms of sex too. And I'm like, penises have much, much lower acuity than my finger does. And because people ask me, they're like, do you think that he'll be able to tell? Like, is it going to feel different if my, if my partner has slept with cis women in the past, like, is this going to be an issue? And I was like, Man, I don't think it's going to be an issue. I think it's going to be great. I'm excited for you. Amazing. It's fascinating. I feel like I need to Google or YouTube some videos so I can. Oh, you see. definitely should. Yeah. You definitely should. It's super interesting. Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. What, if anything, are you telling your patients about their pelvic floor function moving forward other than needing to use the dilators? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's a question we're still figuring out the answer to. So I, I, when I, for a while, I wasn't really telling them anything about their pelvic floor because if they weren't having dysfunction, I'm not trying to plant a seed of doubt or fear or anything in someone's mind that they don't need. Um, so, you know, we did a little bit of talking about, especially in the beginning, about not, not straining during bowel movements because you don't want to put a lot of pressure on the graft for the risk that it will prolapse. That is a possible surgical complication, but it's pretty uncommon. Um, and... So besides that, as long as they're able to dilate, they're able to have an orgasm. A lot of people who have had a vaginoplasty, a lot of women after vaginoplasty will have a lot of, will have a strange urine spray. And I haven't quite been able to figure out if it's actually really strange or if it's just from peeing sitting down. <laughs> um, and so sometimes it could be pelvic floor musculature. Sometimes it is, it can be, um, just the way that the urethra heals, you get like this stricture and it kind of makes the hole smaller. And so you get a wider spray. Uh, it can be a couple different things. As long as it's not overly bothersome to them. I don't, I don't mention it unless they, someone brings it up first. Um, and, but that all that being said, I recently got a really, really great message from a previous patient who said, Hey, um, I just want to tell you, thank you so much for your help. And also here are the things we have, we had a really good relationship and she offered this information and she said, here are the things that have really helped me return to sexual function in the post-operative period. And I was like, yes, this is so great. Tell me all your, tell me all your secrets. Yes. So, um, one of the things that she said was that it was really helpful for her to do Kegels before intercourse. So she started doing it before dilation and that was really helpful. And then she started doing it before intercourse. And that has also made a really big difference in her ability to have penetrative intercourse with someone who has a penis, which is just really cool. So cool. And then what were you saying? How long through the recovery process till someone can be having vaginal penetration? Mm -hmm. Any kind of penetration. So any kind of penetration. Anal penetration is also off the table for the first three months. First three months. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. And so we start talking about like, you can start touching and you're touching and trying to have an orgasm, touching your clitoris and trying to have an external orgasm starting at eight weeks. Eight weeks. Um, but that tissue also looks different. So, um, vaginas will, neovaginas will look all sorts of ways. They'll turn all sorts of colors because you have the skin that's trying to regrow. Um, and so it might be yellow or tan, um, brown, like you'll, at the beginning, it'll be kind of bloody, like those sorts of things. Um, that will all change. The smell will also change. Um, I had a really interesting conversation with someone recently. She was like, oh, like my, my vagina, it just has a smell. Like I just got out of the shower and now it has a smell again. And the interesting thing is sometimes it is like a, a healing thing. You have skin healing inside the vagina. And so that's going to have a, a smell to it. Um, or it can be leftover lubricant that can have a smell to it. Um, but sometimes I had to tell her, I was like, it's just dark and wet in there. And actually cis vaginas also have a smell to them. And as long as it's just a little bit earthy, that's just the way you smell. And that's totally normal. Mm -hmm. So like having that conversation is also really interesting. So good. Such important stuff. I love it. I really love it. Couple last questions for you. I'm wondering how long is it until people feel like back on their feet, like pretty good in their daily lives after surgery? Yeah. So that can look like a lot of things. Um, I, we try, I have seen better outcomes. I think in terms of people being able to take a full six to eight weeks off of work, that's not just not always possible. So that's another conversation about access um, because people have to be able to pay their bills. And so they might not be able to, to not work for that long. Um, and, but I, I would say normally at six weeks, they're definitely feeling mostly normal, but it also depends on what their hormones are doing. Um, so I have a patient now too, who had her testicles removed during her vaginoplasty. And so her hormonal makeup is just a little bit different now. Um, because those, those testes were creating, um, testosterone, which they aren't anymore. Mm -hmm. And so that can impact like fatigue and things like that. Yeah. Um, the other thing that will happen is that before surgery, and I think immediately after surgery, people are doing a better job or, or they're more careful and cognizant about like what they're eating and their nutrition. Cause they're like eating to heal and drinking lots of water and things like that. And then once they get back to their more like quote, more normal lives, sometimes those things and back to work too, for sure. Um, go, kind of go by the wayside. And then sometimes people don't feel as good either. So I'm really grateful that I get to follow people for a longer period of time, because then it's nice that we started talking about your, your vagina and your healing, but now we're talking about your diet and how that's affecting your energy and what that looks like. And can we, Hey, let's just sneak you in some like low back stuff and strength while you're here so that you can really feel the best that you can, which is cool. Yeah. That's so cool. This conversation has been amazing. Is there anything we didn't cover that you think is important to this conversation? Um, I think that from a healthcare provider perspective, it is, and in general, I think when people start talking about trans care and working with trans people and knowing trans people and the pronoun thing, and like, there's a lot of anxiety about that. And I used to think it was because people were mean and like, didn't just didn't, didn't believe in it, didn't think it was relevant. And I think there are some people to whom that for whom that's true. But I also think that a lot of it just has to do with our own anxiety and our, we want to, we want to self-preserve. We want to be right all the time. And so we're not confident that we can be right in this. Um, and that we won't do harm. And so we try and protect ourselves by saying like, oh, pronouns are so confusing. And like, 
but they were a man. They were not, she was not a man. She has never been a man. Um, when we are talking about sex assigned at birth, it is, I used to think as a medical provider too, I used to think like, oh, well, this is the fact. This is the part that I can really cement onto, cling onto. This is the fact. It's not a fact because the reality is the way that that was assigned was that a baby was born, a doctor looked at their genitals and, deci- and decided. That's it. It has nothing to do with their, it doesn't even have anything to do with their genetic makeup. And we know that chromosomes have, are way more diverse than that. Um, it has nothing to do with the hormonal makeup. Um, it doesn't even talk about people who are intersex who may have conflicting or like variant variants of genitals. Um, and so it's not a fact. I think that's important to say, because I think that is something that really helped me get better at conceptualizing transgender and gender non-binary and how much gender is, it really is a social construct that doesn't actually mean anything until it, until it comes from us. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much for that. How long have you been doing this work with trans people? Not terribly long, to be honest, since April. Since April. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think that that is important to know too, that you still are learning so much, I'm sure. Yeah. And all of us are, even if we are just people in the world who are trying to do right by others and learn about these conversations and you who are doing very specific work in this field, we're all just trying to learn and to do our best here. Yeah. And, and I am someone, right. I really do get it because I am someone who I do want to get everything right. And I went into this field because I want to help people and I don't want to do any harm. And, um, and you're going to screw it up some of the time I got through my, I think it was maybe my first or second evaluation of a trans, of a transgender woman. And we did great. Things were going awesome. She was in there with her female, with her girlfriend. And at the end I was like, okay, I'm just going to go get you guys some paperwork. And I was like, Oh no. Oh no. (laughs) And I like, I don't know what my face did. I'm sure I do not have a good poker face. I'm sure it wasn't awesome, but I, and it's like, in that moment, I could make it about me and, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I just meant guys. Like I say guys to everyone. It was just a general guys. It wasn't like a specific guys or I could do what I did, which was smile, say, I'll be right back and hope that, you know, that they weren't harmed. We had already had a really good appointment, hope that they were not harmed and really hope like make it as give as much space as possible for if they were harmed or upset that they would you know, express that to me. And if they had expressed that to me, again, not making it about me, but just saying, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to. And um, there are some people who have had to give me that permission. So even on the internet, so Jenna Brown is love over fear wellness, I think. And they are great. And, um, I think they were one of the first people to give me permission or just to give people permission to just do the thing. It might be wrong, but just do the thing. And how many times have you misgendered a cisgender person? Just like slip of the tongue. It happens. It happens. Totally. Yes. And apologizing is cool. It's okay to apologize and admit you're wrong in that moment. And all of that stuff is okay. Yeah. And I think one more thing from a provider perspective that sometimes people are going to come at you and it seems really confrontational and you feel that it's disproportionate to whatever the misstep was. 
And that is not about you. It, it is about the experiences that that person has had leading up until this point. And they, you know, that, that whole just like a, a thousand tiny cuts situation. And so it's, it's really cool that as a provider and someone who's already in this um, more position of power that you can just eat that. And so it was Tuesday Farrell from who did the class with uh, Heather Edwards, who does the pelvic guru care, transgender health care class um, that I, I went to in November. So again, always learning. We're just all learning all the time. Um, and they said that uh, it's an ally tax and you just eat that tax because you can, because it's not going to harm you. Yes. Ally tax. I love that. Yeah. Wonderful. Where can we find more about you? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram at Christina.holland. And so my name is funny. It's K-R-Y-S-T-Y-N-A. Uh, I'm on Facebook at the same name. And those are probably the best places now. My website is www.inclusivecarellc.com. And yeah, I just put out public floor content all the time. I think it's really important to, to talk about. I want people to have good healthcare information that puts them in the driver's seat, really promotes a lot of body autonomy. And so, yeah, that's where you can find me. Beautiful. We'll link to all that in the show notes. And you do treat people in the Denver, Colorado area. I do. Yes. All right, Christina, you're the best. Thank you so much for being on with us and having this chat. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 